0: Welcome to the August episode of the Microbiology Lab Pod. My name is Johan Bengtsson-Palme and I am an assistant professor at the Department of Infectious Diseases at the University of Gothenburg. Today is the 20th of August and we are all back again from vacation. And on today's pod we will go all the way from bacterial succession in the environment to mechanisms behind COVID-19 symptoms. We'll do that uh, by going by model systems for lung infection. So we got some ground to cover today. Here with me to discuss today are Emil Bümann, who started as an assistant researcher in the lab this summer. He works with disturbances and invasion in microbial communities. How are you doing, Emil? I'm doing very good, Johan. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Uh, How has your summer been?
1: Well, I have been working uh, and not uh, taking my vacation since uh, I finished my thesis. Then I took a month and then I started uh, at the beginning of July. So since then, I've been... uh, standing in the lab, working with the communities, doing invasion stuff, you know, pre- having a pretty good time so
0: far. I'm happy. That's great. Um, has it been bearable in the lab or has it been too hot? I know that yeah, the it's... air conditioning in, in our building is, well, as old as the building itself, so from the 60s.
1: Yeah, I actually had a conversation with uh, one of our colleagues uh, about this exact point. Uh, that it's so super warm in uh, in the laboratory, and I just remember i I, I walked into, uh, to her specific lab to ask her, her a question, and uh, I just saw her drenching <laughs> in sweat, and I just thought, no, it's not a good time to ask a question, so I'm just gonna sneak out back here and just come back later <laughs> so it's been uh, it's been uh, quite warm yes.
0: Yeah, but on the other hand, you, you, that's a compensation for the cold temperatures you have in the winter. So, yeah, yeah. I guess it's, it's, it sort of evens out in the big game. <laughs> <laughs> We're also joined by Havila Kunche, who is a master student in the lab and is working with antibiotic resistance in Pseudomonas aeruginosa. So, how are you doing, Havila?
2: Hello, Johan. Yeah, I'm doing good. How are you?
0: I'm fine. And um, what, have, um, what have you been up to this summer?
2: Oh, I got to experience the Swedish summer. This is my first time because last year I went back home, so I couldn't really. But this year I thought maybe I would experience the midsummer. But thanks to Corona, (laughs) it didn't really happen. So, yeah, it's nice after having some long break, you can call maybe. So it's good to have uh, to come back with lots of energy.
0: That's very good. Um, I think I mean it's been it's been a bit of a special summer, and uh, the the good part of the of the Swedish summer is that you even during Corona times you can sort of experience the light, which I think is the really yeah. special part about reading being in Sweden in uh, in June. Mm-hmm. That you have these kind of summer nights where it never really gets dark, and then it just starts becoming lighter again. Yeah. Uh, although by now we're we're actually having dark evenings again.
2: Yeah. A
0: little now. We are also joined by Anna Abramova, who is a postdoc in the Embark project, working with monitoring of antibiotic resistance in the environment. How are you doing, Anna?
3: Hello, I'm fine, thank you.
0: How? how, What have you spent your summer with?
3: Yeah, I um, I love to travel, but uh, this summer it was impossible. Oh, well, I love to travel abroad and. because of the restrictions uh, enforced by pandemic, it was not possible, but I took some time and traveled inside Sweden instead. So I managed to visit both East Coast, um, sailed a little bit on the West Coast and hiked in Swedish Lapland. So it was fantastic summer, despite of the yeah pandemic.
0: You've been—I mean, considering that you said that you haven't traveled much, you consider, you've been traveling a considerably larger distance than I have been able to travel this summer. Since the furthest I've got was like northern Bohuslän, which is two hours by car north of north of Gothenburg. <laughs> um, so, some some news in the lab is that we are having a, a number of new master students coming in this uh, this fall, and two of them are also joining us today. So first, uh, Mabuba, Akhtar, uh, you are a master student who will be working with Emil on genes contrib- con- contributing to microbial invasion processes. Uh, Mabuba, could you present yourself a little bit and tell tell us a little bit about your background?
4: Yeah, um, recently I joined. Yeah, in your lab, and I will do I will do my thesis on microbial invasion. Yeah, and here we will. To work with the model community, Thor. And previously, I, I started bachelor studies in, my, in Bangladesh in microbiology. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I came here in Sweden last year. And also, I have a lot of hope about the vacation, but it totally rained, I should say, because uh, I have a massive plan about the vacation and I wanted to uh, solo Euro tour. But yeah, it, it, it was not possible for the COVID pandemic. But uh, I should say it's not totally ruined because I have the chance to tour around the Gothenburg. Yeah,
0: I—I I mean, I um i spent my summers in Gothenburg, despite being from from Uppsala originally, and I've always thought about Gothenburg as a summer city. So I guess uh, to 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 some extent, it's not the worst city in Sweden to be stuck in. Uh, I can tell you that being stuck in Uppsala in the summer would have been like a hundred times worse because Uppsala really dies during summertime when the students are moving home. So. It's at least a little bit better to be close to the sea <laughs> than to to be stuck inland yeah. in Uppsala.
4: Well, actually, this is different. Like in other countries, there is a restriction for the COVID. But in Sweden, I think it's kind of relaxed. So I had the chance to do uh, have my normal life. It's a good point, I think.
0: Yeah, I guess that's the upside of having had a fairly be, fairly liberal strategy on uh, containing the the COVID pandemic. Mm. Um so you were saying that you had a background in microbiology, right?
4: Yes. In my bachelor's, I work on the antimicrobial resistance problem. And in my country, I think there is a kind of uh, use of antibiotics. So the thing I wanted to do, I, I just wanted to identify some soil samples and water samples that, have that how the organisms in that sample are resistant towards the common antibiotic. So this work was kind of related with my new master's work. So that's why actually I'm interested in this work.
0: So I think this is actually very similar to the thought processes around the environmental uh, the environment and antibiotic resistance that we have in the lab. So I think that's a really good fit. And I think that will be an interesting background to have coming into the discussions we will have later in the fall do, on these podcasts as well. So that's that's a, a great background to, to have in terms of fitting into the overall lab uh, structure. Uh, thank you Um uh, So the the other master student or the other new master student joining us uh, today is uh, Sebastian Westerstein, uh, who is a bioinformatics student or come from a more bioinformatics background and you will formally join the lab next week and you will work on the Metaxa2 package that um, the lab has been maintaining since 2011, actually. Uh, How are you doing, Sebastian? I'm
5: doing fine. It's warm. It's very warm.
0: (laughs) It is warm. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about your background?
5: Yeah, so um, I did uh, my bachelor's in uh, molecular biology here at GEO. And then I'm uh, doing my master's in genomics and systems biology um I've always had an interest in computers and uh, programming etc so um that's kind of the the like the goal I had before I joined my bachelor's so I'm kind of angling for a more of a computational uh, bioinformatics uh, angle I guess
0: so that's actually it's interesting because that's actually very similar to the background I have myself uh, sort of starting off from a biology point of view but having an interest in computers and programming and trying to find a way to u- utilize that knowledge within biology so I think that's it's in, it's interesting to see the uh, the parallels there uh, and you will be working with, uh, with the Metaxa 2 package uh, how much experience do you have with uh, say software development?
5: I mean I, I, um, all programming I've done is like only hobby stuff that I do at home so I do small stuff that only i use but um uh, now during the summer since i've I've only had like a vacation the whole summer and i've not done much travel or anything like that so um i've done some uh, uh, testing of doing some uh, you know some some like the base software uh, development you do and read some books and that so i've practiced a bit
0: very cool you've been you've been utilizing the summer to um develop your skill set uh per- personal development that was the term i was looking for yeah so uh, it's great having you all here i look forward to this and this fall. we'll be joined by uh one more master student who i hope will be able to join us on the on the next podcast um but i think it's time for us to start uh, getting into the actual science of this uh of this pod We'll start the scientific part of the pod um, with a deep dive into the ocean. Specifically, we will talk about microbial succession in deep-sea hydr- hydrothermal vents. And this discussion will be based on a study published in Microbiome in June this year. And apparently this is a really deep topic. Or what do you say, Emil?
1: Panske uh, yeah. <laughs> No, but uh, it's, a, it's a very thorough paper, if I, if I can use a synonym. Uh, but it's... I actually really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, so uh, if I may, I will take the reins and go ahead and present this paper.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I I would love to hear your your thoughts of it because it's not only a deep um, a deep topic; it's also a hot topic. Uh, so yeah.
1: So uh, the title of this paper, as Johan described, is. Uh, the microbial succession during the transition from active to inactive stages of deep-sea hydrothermal vent sulphide chimneys. So that is quite quite a mouthful. So uh, this paper is about uh, hydrothermal vents. And hydrothermal vents are cracks in the ground uh, that expunge uh, molten lava inside Uh, the Earth's crust into the environment itself. And this is mainly found on the bottom of the ocean. And these particular uh, cracks in the Earth's crust are a biological hot zone compared to the environment, uh, the usual nutrient deficient environment that is very common in the benthic areas of the sea. And that is because they have a large amount of disposition of uh, electron-giving molecules and electron-taking molecules that are widely available for uh, microbes that, uh, microbes and other organisms that have the ability to use those particular uh, electron-givers and electron-takers. Uh, so, uh, previously it has been described that there are certain sulfide and hydrogen and methane-taking uh, microbes that live readily close to these particular hydrothermal vents. Uh, However, uh, uh, during previous analysis, it has been described that these particular uh, microbes disappear during uh, the phases when the hydrothermal vents are exhausted of their uh, resources. So what this paper wanted to analyze was uh, to see how the succession occurs. So how come a dominant uh, microbiome of that particular hydrothermal vent succeeds over time uh, until uh, as a result of both uh, diminishing resources uh, but also uh, a change in temperature, which is uh, described by the loss of uh, exhaustion from the magma from from surrounding it. So how did they actually do this? Well, uh, they took two hydrothermal vents, uh, one that was currently active and took metagenome samples from it and chemical samples, Uh, And they also took samples from uh, an inactive volcano that was exhausted in, uh, so the the volcano was exhausted in 2006, uh, but the samples were taken in 2013, sorry, 2014. And from those samples, they did chemical analysis to ensure what, electron givers and electron takers were present in uh, the nearby environment of those hydrothermal vents, and they also took metagenome samples and did metagenome sequencing in order to check the abundance of the different uh, constituents of the microbiome of those sites uh, and to check what uh, metabolism genes were uh, abundant in those particular uh, microbiomes as well. Uh, they found that in the uh, active uh, hydrothermal vent, there was a larger increase of uh, of hydrogen sulfide and uh, sulfates, and they also found uh, hi- uh, normal elemental hydrogen that was actively readily available, uh, and if, uh, which was then could be used as a food source for those particular uh, microbes. In contrast to the exhausted uh, chimney, which had a lot of the end products of that particular, in particular they found uh, no amount of carbon was present, uh, which they will uh, describe uh, uh, a little bit later, which why is why they suspect why this is the case. But uh, they really do did note that carbon was uh, both in the form of uh, methane and in other uh, carbon uh, electron givers, it uh, was not readily available. Uh, in the active chimney, they found that uh, there was a huge dominance of two particular uh, phylums of bacteria. And in the active they found it was compylobacter and sorry I'm gonna slaughter this name because I don't speak Latin but it's Acquifice, aquifi Acquifice, aquifice, aqui, aquifice aqui, something like that aquifice okay mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they also, uh, in, and that is also very important because, in contrast to the uh, to the exhausted chimneys, uh, there were also two phylum that were uh, abundant in the exhausted chimney, which was uh, gamma protobacteria uh, and nitospire, and that is of uh, a huge importance because uh, the contrast between these two phylums is in their uh, energy metabolism, where. Uh, the, the members who were dominant in the in the active volcano, they are readily, they can readily metabolize sulfite uh, to sulfate, and also elemental sulfur to sulfate, and this is important because they can use this as a food source. They are as, uh, as described Uh, and in contrast, this is not readily available within gamma proteobacteria and nitrospira However, uh, one thing that is very important is that they can use uh, downstream metabolites of uh, sulfate as a food stores. Okay, so after that, they did some uh, bioinformatics analysis, which uh, when I looked at it, uh, I I felt that this was sort of uh, outside of my area of expertise. But they did do some uh, metagenome stuff and they compiled a phylogenetic tree uh, where they pooled the metagenome assembly genomes, if I got that correctly, uh, and in order to see how the phylogeny of the two different chimneys were sticking together. They proposed that these particular uh, succession events can be described by two different models. And these two models they have termed the fluid-shaped community conceptual model and the mineral-shaped conceptual model. And that is based on how the metabolites uh, are uh, uptaken as a secondary metabolites, are secreted and and reused. So in the fluid-shaped community, which is as they described in the beginning uh, of the uh, and active phases of uh, the hydrothermal vents, so that would mean that when they are somewhat of a constant supply of new electron suppliers uh, so they, they aren't running out so the community is constantly having fresh sulfur being supplied to the uh, to the microbiome and as uh, that vanishes more uh, of this secondary and metabolites are building up within the microbial community and they, they, they have this model of like is, is describing like different phylum can like dominate within the different phases but one uh, bacteria which is really important that they do describe is a bacteria called Acidolithobacillus ferroxidans uh, which, which is what this bacteria can do is that it can use uh, sulfur and sulfur metabolites to produce pyrite and pyrohotite, which is a mineral that falls out of solution, and thus making it unavailable to, that, uh, to the community. So that knocks it out from the environment. And thus, uh, once the, the uh, <clears throat> acid bacillus fedoxidans becomes more and more abundant, you will get this succession event, which uh, transforms it from a fluid-shaped community to a mineral-shaped community, and that will then change the community uh, into a more into a new steady state, which is based on uh, other metabolites that are not sulfur. However, they did uh, speculate a little bit what would happen if the same hydrothermal vent was activated once again, uh, and they said that there were like uh, different different um, uh, possibilities that could happen they say that otherwise like if the community was so established then probably it couldn't be uh, re-established with this new sulfur uh, metabolizing uh, microbes because the, now there was already occupied or it could be that uh, now that this new niche was opened up the the amount of energy that could be viable could just allow the sulfur metabol the sulfur metabolizing microbes to just completely outcompete the microbiome that had been established. And they said that they can't actually analyze this in a natural setting because it's so unpredictable to to predict where these hydrothermal vents uh, activate. So that was the paper. Uh, I thought it was really cool because they went to uh, a a few areas that uh, I have uh, had some experience in before and that is mainly due to chemical analysis of water and uh, they also went into the microbiomes, which is where I am working, uh, in the field, which is where I'm working currently. So I found that this paper was really, uh, really cool.
0: It's like it's on the cutting edge of both of your expertise areas. <laughs> yeah. I have one thing um, that I think is a bit of a pity of this study, and I think you've sort of touched upon why they can't do it better than that. And that is that they base this entire, as far as I can understand at least, they base this entire model of this succession process from the fluid-shaped community into the mineral-shaped community on two observations. Yeah. So they have essentially the active state and they have the non-active state. And in my mind, given how quickly microbial processes proceed generally, it's not very surprising that they uh, that they see that this 7 year or 8 year time point after the activity ceased is similar to the one several thousand years down the line yeah. because i think unless you have a change in the very environment the actual succession from one type of community to another one i think it would be reasonable to think that that could happen in days or weeks rather than years yeah. Uh, and that after that point it's more of a stable niche and that stable niche looks a lot like the other stable niches resulting from inactivated uh hydrothermal winds. So I I'm I'm a little bit torn on uh whether they could have done that better, but I guess you have you have sort of the answer to why they can't have better, have more time points or why they couldn't get closer to the actual inactivation time of this, uh, this event. And I guess that has to do with the unpredictability.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I would also just one caveat to that point that you're raising is that uh, when we're talking, yeah, I didn't really talk about it a lot uh, during my presentation, but they did make the point that uh, Carbon is somewhat present if you compare it to other microbiomes inside of the sea, uh, and that is due to this mineral phase uh, community uh, secretes carbon dioxide. So they they actually metabolize all of the carbon dioxide present in, inside of that uh, community, and then it just it just vanishes. So and they they did uh, strengthen that point as well in with the. Uh, Krebs cycle was uh, enriched in the uh, what do you say in the in the in the non-ventilating uh, chimney compared to the ventilating one. So that would indicate that there, if there is some present, it would just be metabolized. And uh, it is more in the case that um, there is a carbon metabolism in in relation to uh, this hydrothermal vent, it would just be outcompeted by. The sulfur-based metabolism.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess <laughs> it's a, this is this is sort of um, going into areas where I feel that their their word is worth a lot more than than mine in terms of interpretation. <laughs> so if that's what they say, I guess I I'm on board with yeah, that. Sure. In terms of the bioinformatics in here, uh, do you have anything to? To say about this have you looked anything about uh, anything at the methodology here
1: yeah i just took the bioinformaticians were at the verge and maybe i could have done some more uh, thorough research but i mean i thought i thought it was really cool i didn't really go into the uh, to the exact mechanisms of succession that they described once the uh uh, once the uh, hydrothermal vents stopped exhausting but they are actually quite thorough in describing the um, Uh, in what violence dominates and what they secrete. And I think think it's really
0: uh, cool. Yeah, I think in terms of uh, describing the differences between active and non-active chimneys, I think it's a good description in terms of that. As I said before, I think the problem here is that they're talking about the succession process and they are actually not observing the process. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit like visiting a um, pasture. And then, coming back a hundred years later, and you see that there's a suddenly a forest full of spruces and pine trees there, and you're um based on that you're saying you're predicting what's happened in between, and I guess there is a there is certain likelihood that you miss that there was actually a um a middle phase here where you have most mostly leafy trees, for example. And I think there's a there's a there's a similar problem with the logic here that they might actually be missing the window in between the active and the long-term non-active states. Uh, but aside from that caveat, I think yes I mean it's it's useful to think about this as a succession process. And I think that's actually something that we might want to take with us A little bit more when we think about environmental system and antibiotic resistance and start talking about antibiotic resistance ecology that aside from just being a selective process for antibiotic resistance, you also have these other processes going on in natural systems um, unless they have already sort of matured into their final stage.
1: Yeah, I mean the the, uh, the analogs between uh, this succession event and uh, a potential succession event after antibiotic treatments are pretty obvious. I mean, uh, if you just if you can see it as a as a uh, as the same catastrophic event for the microbiome as an addition to an antibiotic, for example, in the guts, uh, compared to this loss of uh, uh, sulfur supply. Uh, yeah. And uh, of course, if you can see that there is uh, this. Uh, and I don't know, maybe you could draw some parallels between uh, how the different abundances between the different parts of the gut, for example. Uh, yeah, so it's it's a cool paper. I like
0: it. Yeah, and I mean it is fundamentally it is about severe community disturbance in the same way that forest fires or antibiotic uh, treatment uh, are also severe disturbances to the to the local microbial uh, the local community in general. Next up, uh, we will stick with microbes for a little bit more, but this time in the context of human infections, uh, and we will do that based on a recent paper uh, that was published in the journal Biofilm in early June. And this paper describes a model system for pathogenic biofilm formation in the lungs. And we're a lab that like um, we're a lab that like model systems. So what's so special about this system, Havila?
2: thank you Aaron, for the introduction so this is a paper uh, building a better biofilm the formation of in vivo like biofilm structures by pseudomonas aeruginosa in a porcine model of cystic fibrosis lung infection by niam Asser, and freer published on june 3rd 2020. Uh, the aim of this paper is to optimize a uh, lung uh, model which is ex vivo pig lung model for uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa infection that can be used to increase the understanding uh, of this uh, chronic cystic fibrosis biofilm infection. As we all know that uh, biofilm is a, mi- a microbial aggregate of bacterial cells and a matrix that consists of proteins, lipids, polysaccharides, etc. that can provide the microbial population with increased antibiotic tolerance and also protection against the host immune response. Cystic fibrosis is the genetic condition where there is a persistent biofilm-associated lung infection and it is highly resistant to the antibiotic treatment. Uh, Cystic fibrosis infections can be uh, polymicrobial, but Pseudomonas arignosa is the most abundant cystic fibrosis pathogen. Pseudomonas arignosa can switch from the initial acute stage of infection to chronic biofilm infection. And these can be, uh, these chronic infections can be characterized by the mucus plugs formed in airways of uh, patients with uh, cystic fibrosis. Currently, there are like many models which are in vitro and mouse models, but the problem with uh, in vitro is they don't accurately mimic the cystic fibrosis biofilms, and with uh, mouse models, their airway secretions are different with the human airway secretions so they instead use a uh, ex vivo pig lung model where pig lungs demonstrate uh, like they have the closer similarity similarity to the human lungs especially in physiology anatomy and immunology so they have developed this model where they use the uh, artificial uh, sputum medium along with sections of parts and bronchial they uh, developed this model so that uh, they successfully mimic the clinical relevant aspects of cystic uh, fibrosis uh, pseudomonas aeruginosa metabolism and biofilm formation everything about this model was good except that i was hurt a little at one part where they say that uh, they highlight the importance of uh, visualizing uh, biofilms in order to understand chronic infection in a way that in vitro models of bacterial growth cannot achieve, since we are working on that uh, bacterial growth uh, in vitro models, and they say that we cannot achieve, so it's a little hurt. Apart from the controversy, controversies aside, this model has the potential to provide a platform that can aid in the development of novel drugs and treatment regimens. Uh, they tried. To develop a medium, which is the artificial sputum medium, to in, in, this is the initial phase where they want to find out if simple and complex formulations of this medium can lead to comparable uh, growth and virulence of Pseudomonas arignosa in this uh, pig lung model. So they develop uh, two kinds of medium. One is the ASM1, artificial sputum medium 1, and ASM2, artificial sputum medium 2. And ASM1 is a medium that contains free uh, amino acids, cations, anions, and lactate that represent the concentrations found in the sputum samples from cystic fibrosis patients. And ASM2 contains meosin, membrane lipid, glucosamine, and free DNA that represents the host meosins found in biofilm plugs found in the bronchioles of people with cystic fibrosis. So they try to investigate if they want to use the lung model with ASM1 that is media one or media two. In order to find that uh, they have taken the strain uh, that is PA14 here in this case and uh, clinical isolates SED42 and SED43 from cystic fibrosis patients that they use to infect the lung model with uh, media one and media two they wanted to find out if uh, they are affecting any other uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa biology. So they wanted to uh, check in other EXO products associated with virulence like quorum sensing products and proteases, pyoclean and pyoverdin. By doing ANOVA, they show that like there is no significant difference since the p-values with a strain or with a medium single alone or with the combination they have the p-value like greater than 0.05 showing like no significant difference and they go with the uh, asm1 uh, since it is cheaper affordable version rather than asm2 they wanted to show the pseudomonas formation on the model and the uh, medium if it replicates if it recapitulates the morphology of biofilm independent on GAC regulatory system and uh, Pel polysaccharide. GAC regulatory system is the one that is required for the activation of antibiotics and cyanides and in pathogens the GAC sensor kinase c- system controls the virulence gene expression and PEL polysaturide is a structural component of extracellular matrix for uh, aeruginosa biofilms. It's clear that GAC it regulates the biofilm formation and PEL, it's like uh, required for the biosynthesis of biofilm matrix. So they consider three different replicates of lungs, which they want to compare with the PA14 alone and one with the GAC and one with the PEL will stain uh, the wild type GAC and PEL after two days and after seven days so after uh, all the analysis like uh, they work with the medium asm1 medium and by uh, working with different uh, mutants they want to uh, express that this model can work alone even in the presence of other uh, mutants that are responsible for the formation of biofilm. Like in 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 vitro models or in vivo models, these are essentially required. But in this pig lung model alone itself, it can work uh, irrespective of the presence of these mutants. So they say that like uh, this uh, lung model they have developed is like uh, useful. Uh, to replicate a realistic uh, CF lung biofilm, like the patient's uh, cystic fibrosis lung biofilm. And also it provides a gap between the in vitro model and human infection.
0: Yeah, so I guess that means coming back to the question that we started with, uh, what is it that makes this model so special?
2: Because it represents uh, exactly the CF lung patients, like how... Uh, the environment of uh, what a CF lung patient's uh, used to for the uh, bacteria to grow. This is exactly a replica of those. Uh, either the in vitro models or any other models we use, they don't really like uh, look exactly the same. But since this pig lung is like uh, similar to the human lung, and it works, uh, yeah, even after like testing with the other mutants like it can work without all those mutants alone like which are responsible for the formation of biofilm. So yeah, since it represents to the original CF lung, I, I'm thinking that's what it makes it special.
0: So do you, do you do you feel that they succeed in their in their stated goal in the abstract to bridge yes. the gap between in vitro work and CF lung, CF lung infection? <laughs>
2: um. Uh, I'm not sure if they can really uh, bridge the gap, but they did give some information on how it can be seen or what is the real difference between how an in vitro lung model and how a real uh, model that works exactly same to the infected patients.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, of course, I'm I'm in uh, um, I'm in favor of models that mimic actual mm-hmm. conditions. Mm-hmm. If that means that you get. Uh, more accurate results or more relevant results but also Mm -hmm. it's a trade-off against how workable the model is Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean ideally we would do all of our studies in humans uh, in terms of relevance but that would not really be feasible in terms of costs and ethical issues Um, so we don't and uh, i guess this is a way of trying to get a little bit of a middle ground there Mm-hmm. One thing that I that struck me as a little bit complicated here, and it seems like you've been running into the same issue, is that uh, they say somewhere that their results clearly demonstrate uh, the importance of using biofilm grown in laboratory models and being able to to visualize this, and not only do uh, colony forming units, for example. Um, the problem I have with that is not the statement as such, because I can see that, but mm-hmm. I don't really think that they are making a fantastic job visualizing things here, uh-huh. uh, because in basically none of those um, microscopy pictures, I can really follow
2: uh, actually, what they want to show. Actually, I, I had the problem as well. This is a really nice paper, but the staining images are like kind of hard to understand and interpret, so i thought like everything about this paper is good but except that uh, if they would have given like more clear description of the images it would have been like really easy to understand so that's what i thought
0: i even have a bit of a mm. hard time seeing the clear mm. difference between uninfected and mm. um, the infected ones in in the figure yeah. they yeah, they provide true. and i i bet that i mean they they are, they are they've been putting out these kind of like bars Mm -hmm. so you should know what to look for Mm -hmm. and and i mean i i can see that yeah they have put the bar between two things but i can't clearly say that yeah those things there that's a bacterial biofilm while this other thing that you haven't included in the bar Mm -hmm. is not i i can't say for sure yeah um which way and i think that may that might be an area of improvement in terms of, of this model system. Yes, I agree. Uh, how say to that images is. in a in a sufficiently good way. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least if that's one of the big target things they wanted to get good images out of it. Um, another thing, which is more of a general note to to everyone in the lab and also anyone else who are willing to listen, uh, it's really helpful to the reader. If you make figure labels large enough to read. Uh, they have a, a like recurring problem throughout this paper that the labels for things in the figures are super small. Uh, so like if you zoom in, you can see that aha, it says total CFU per lung. Oh, it's not a really a volume measure. Um, they could have made that a lot bigger. It would have taken Three more minutes thinking through how to present the figures yeah. uh, and the the fact that they didn't do that, I think is basically just sloppy uh, and also looking at looking at the figure three here, for example, they have different font sizes, they have different fonts they have everything is a mix in this figure, and I think that's to be brutally honest that got, that's that's got them ugly um and the and the final thing i want to say about the layout is that they the, it would also have been really helpful to put in like what is a circle in this plot what is a triangle what is a uh, square because now you have to go down to the figure legend and try and to see. look for the word square somewhere yeah. it's not even the symbol is not even in the in the um, legend for the figures so or the the, um, the descriptive text for the figure and that's it's it annoys me a lot when you have to f- search for how to interpret the uh, the figure, and it's it's really again it's something that takes three to five more minutes to include in your figure. <laughs> to say something positive about the paper, I like reading the paper. I think the text mm. is good. Mm. Uh, it's just that they've haven't spent as much time on the figures as they have on writing a good text, which is. Uh, it's a bit of a pity because it doesn't take that long to to make figures beautiful. Or any, I I don't have, actually, I don't even say that they have to be beautiful, but to make them easily interpretable and accessible. Um,
2: I I kind of felt like it was hard. (laughs) This paper is hard. (laughs) That's what I felt like. It is like, the paper has like really good content, but to remember uh, the terms and the words, it kind of felt like, it
0: is hard yeah i i think it's i think the big problem with the paper is really that it's heavy Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of information and there's a a lot of quite method specific content in it Mm -hmm. uh so you you sort of have to um you have to keep in keep in You have to keep track of what mutants they are using and what comparison they Mm. are doing. And then in the end, it sort of turns out that there's not a lot of difference between the mutants they're using, for Mm -hmm. example. Mm. Um, Which I guess could be a potential problem. Mm. Uh, I mean, if if this is a method that you should be able to use to investigate the performance of mutants, Mm. then having tested the system on mutants that don't show a lot of difference could actually be a downside of it right oh
2: yeah if you see it that's it. yes it I mean it, it, it's it's just I mean but, I I, mean, I thought that okay everything is working their model is awesome but now that you say it there is not much any difference so maybe they could have used another mutants as well yeah um, but I mean if there is like any difference yeah you're saying
0: I mean they they do they do uh, they do claim for example that they have these two uh, pathways required for biofilm uh, mm. Mm. infection mm. that they see effects on. Mm. Um, and yeah, um, they might see a, an effect of that, but it, it is a fairly small effect in terms mm. of calling forming unit, at least. Mm. And then they say that they have a very clear effect, but they base that on figure four. And mm. figure four, as I said before, I think it's not actually that clear, at mm. least not from my point of view. Mm. It might be that when you've been staring at these biofilms in the microscope for several weeks, you start seeing the patterns, and it becomes very clear visually. But for me, it's not a—it's not super clear that there's a big difference between the different mutants. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that they make a super convincing case for that their model is able to really distinguish these mutants in important pathways. Mm-hmm. Um, which might be due to a number of different factors. I mean, it might be that Maybe the the difference isn't that big, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe the model is bad, or maybe there's something else going on here that they quantify it in a bad way. Um, but it's it's not clear to me that this is a um, a model that just solves all all of all of our um, uh, problems. Problems. Uh, so I had two
1: more questions if we have time for yeah. it. Uh, nice. Uh, so, I was also wondering, uh, you mentioned that they try to quantify uh, the, uh, the effect in figure mm. three, if I remember mm. correctly. Yeah, I think we've already touched on this point a little bit with Johan's question. Mm. But, f- like, how would you even quantify this? Like, would you count the, the, the thickness of the biofilm? Would you count the cells? I, 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 I don't get this, this section. Uh, how would you actually do any quantification of this, uh, of these slides? No, uh, I would say I have no idea.
0: <laughs> yeah, fair enough.
1: Do You have any insights, Johan or other?
0: No, I don't really. And I think I, what they do say about this figure is that the Gram stain images demonstrate the increase in density of bacterial cells from day two to day seven post infection. For both mutants and the wild type. And I agree with you that to actually claim that, you would need to have some kind of quantitative measurement of that. Um, Although I can also, I mean, just staring at the picture, it looks like there's more material growth at seven days. But it would have been nice to have like a number corresponding to that.
1: Yeah. And also, like if I am playing the uh, the the big
0: the Devil's Advocate, uh, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was that we get. I mean, how do we know that these sections that we have are representative of the sample that they're actually taking? Like For example, let's say that they they took sections that were somewhat skewered towards one interpretation towards the other. So let's say on the two days on the wild type slide there, for example, they you can see that on the bottom right-hand corner, there's a lot more bacterial growth compared to the top left corner. And you can see the same type of uh density disparity in the seven days as well. However, it is just more centralized. So how do we know, just based on that, that they just aren't they haven't just scrolled the camera a bit more?
0: Uh. I I also <laughs> think there's another problem related to exactly what you're saying here we're very critical now to this data. <laughs> yeah. uh, but this is the problem with pi- with, um, uh, with these kind of microscopy pictures that you can never really be sure whether this is representative of the o- overall image. And maybe they don't know either. Um, yeah. But one reason to be a bit suspicious about this is that if you look at the colony-forming unit plots just above, I don't think there's a super big difference between the same mutant on day two and mm. day seven. But they claim that they mm. can see that in the picture, uh, and I guess that no, they no, they don't say that. No, they only say that they can see a difference
1: in the density, right?
0: Yeah. Okay. So you mean that they would have?
1: So maybe there is the same cell forming core. Is so maybe just the same tissues, but uh, the the density is different. So maybe the biofilm is well. Maybe the. So you mean it would the... be more compact? Yeah. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Uh, I guess. Maybe. I guess that's. A, I, I guess that's a generous interpretation
1: yeah i believe you said that it was GAC a that was uh, mm-hmm. the virulence factor uh, inducer and if you knocked it out uh, you would see less virulence factor did i get that correct uh yes it controls the virulence
2: gene expression
1: yeah yeah so mm-hmm is there like because that for me virulence factors is like super unspecific Mm -hmm. did they did they talk a bit like how they imagined this virulence factor would be inducing uh, uh, this either epithelial colonization or uh, biofilm induction or did you just say yeah there are a lot of uh, virulence Uh, factors here
2: they didn't really say anything about that they just said that they wanted to take this mutants because they are responsible for this function and they want to check, like, uh, this model works irrespective of these mutants or not. So okay, Fine. yeah, but they didn't really say why they want to work on this mutant.
1: No, yeah, okay, because uh, mm. there are a lot of different variance factors that could be. Mm. And I know yeah. at least a few variance factors that are just irrelevant to uh, to colonization and uh, and biof information. So that's mm-hmm. why I was thinking, like, I think that if you were to, uh, if I were to give suggestions to the authors of this paper, I would say that maybe you could go a bit deeper and maybe isolate individual virulence factors instead of just saying it's a. Uh, just having a huge uh, inducer removed, because then you don't know if the individual virus factor itself. But it could also be uh, a secondary effect that you see from a, a another induced element that is more downstream that you d- didn't isolate. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, yeah,
2: they also, that's, they that's also cool. say that like this is uh, for the activation of antibiotics and cyanide, So maybe yeah. since they yeah. wanted to like test if it is like uh, resistant mm-hmm. or not, so maybe that would
1: be also one
0: of the reasons why they're using this. Sure, sure. But I guess this is also a little bit that the problem that Emil is pointing to, that if it's also involved in antibiotic resistance and this and that, then how clear mm-hmm. is yeah. it really that this is a virulence-coupled effect? Exactly. Um,
1: like, how do you... And also, it could just be that uh, if it induces biofilm, then it would become more resistant because dislocation of the, uh, the individual antibiotic molecules themselves, of course, but that, that, then it's not really, I would, uh, I would try to be more specific if I were yeah. the authors of this paper next time.
0: So we, we, we now know what Emil would say as a reviewer to this paper. <laughs> So for our last paper today, um, in these times, I think a podcast wouldn't really be complete uh, without a discussion on some aspect, at least, of COVID-19. So now we will discuss why patients with COVID-19 commonly lose their sense of smell. And we'll have this discussion based on a paper published in Science Advances in July. Uh, And Anna, what have you learned? What may be the reason?
3: Yeah, so I'm going to present this paper... Uh, that is called non uh, neural expression of SARS CoV 2 entry genes in the olfactory system, suggests mechanisms underlying COVID 19 associated anasmia. So, anasmia or temporary loss of smell is a rather common uh, symptom and one of the earliest symptoms indicating COVID 19. And some papers also suggest that it is rather it is a better predictor than the well-known symptoms such as, for instance, fever and cough. However, underlying mechanism for loss of smell in patients with COVID-19 have been unclear. So loss of smell is not something new. Many other viruses induce also temporary changes in the perception of smells. So that happens mainly due to... Um, Uh, associated with the virus infection uh, processes, such as uh, running nose or rhinitis or congestion and uh, supporting inflammation in the nasal cavity. However, reports suggest that uh, in many cases with COVID-19, there is no observed uh, inflammation, however uh, observed loss of smell. Also interesting that in case of COVID-19, The recovery occurs just within a few weeks, while in case of other viruses, anasmia can take frequently up to several months. And in the latest case, it is known that these viruses rather often damage their olfactory sensory neurons. So altogether, this suggests that COVID-19 might have different mechanisms in comparison to other viruses. However, uh, it still remains unknown. So by now, it is um, rather well established that COVID-19 virus, uh, it interacts with cells through binding of its spike protein to the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, or ACE2, that is present on the surface of the target cells. As well as some proteases, such as TMPRSS2, might be also important for the viral entry. So, the authors um, hypothesized that if they be able to identify the cells in the nasal cavity that are expressing these two genes, ACE2 and TMPRS2, which are important for the viral entry in the cells, they will be able to provide more insights into the mechanisms through which COVID 19 virus alters smell perception. So, a few words about the structure of, our, of the nasal epithelium. Um, it is actually divided into two different epithelium types. One is called respiratory epithelium and another one olfactory epithelium. And the functions of those two as well as cell types are rather different. So olfactory epithelium is the one that is responsible for odor perception and it carries so-called olfactory sensory neurons. Those are cells that carry receptors on the surface which bind to the odor molecules. There are, they are surrounded by other types of cells which are called support cells and they can provide um, both structural support as well as clear the potentially damaging molecules or maintain, for instance, water and salt balance. Among the cells there are also stem cells which are activated upon the damage and help to regenerate the tissue. So the authors um, decided to look at what kind of cells in the olfactory epithelium express the genes ACE2 in particular and um, the protease TMPRSS2 and they started by analyzing already existing single cell sequencing data set that were obtained from the nasal cavities of humans, mice and non-human primates. And what they discovered is that they observed that The effect Repetelium expresses abundantly both those genes, however none of these genes specifically expressed in the sensory neurons. On the other hand, uh, these two genes are rather highly expressed in the surrounding or supporting cells, and the level of expression is comparable to those in the respiratory tract further on they also used a model system in this case mice and uh, analyzed data sets um, and observed very similar pattern uh, of expression as in human nasal cavities so so they also looked at how for instance stem cells would behave when uh, upon injury and infection by the virus and appeared that when the stem cells Activated, they express much higher levels of ACE two receptor, ACE two uh, protein, and this suggests a high vulnerability to the virus. Furthermore, um, one of the one of the interesting questions how virus infects uh, how virus affects the olfactory system is connected to uh, the fact that it can affect both the olfactory um, epithelium, but also it can go into the olfactory bulb. And this is a structure in the brain that receives the odor signals and um, process them. So to uh, um, investigate this, they looked at expression of the ACE2 in the olfactory bulb. Uh, they found that the neurons, they do not express this protein. However, another other types of cells present in the blood vessels, such as they called pericytes, um, and involved in the blood pressure regulation as well as inflammatory processes, that they have ACE2 on their, um they express ACE2. So altogether, this data suggests that COVID-19 related anasmia. Um, May arise rather may arise mainly from uh, infection of the supporting cells rather than the olfactory sensory neurons, which explains in a way the rather fast recovery of the smell after the clearance of infection. Also, uh, they suggest several different possible mechanisms for disturbances in order perception related to COVID-19. And one of them, it could be that um, infection of the support cells in the nozzle cavity could cause inflammation and and affect the function of both olfactory sensory neurons and olfactory bulb. As well as damage of support cells could influence signaling of the olfactory sensory neurons as well as their death. But also they suggest that one of the potential mechanisms could be the vascular damage uh, that lead to inflammation and changes in the olfactory bulb function. The results of this study help to accelerate efforts to better understand the smell loss in the COVID-19 patients, as well as it could lead to treatments for anosmia and development of um, smell-based diagnostics
0: for the disease. I think first of all that this is a qu- quite heavy study. I uh, there was a lot of things to try to wrap your head around uh, throughout this uh, this manuscript. Um and one thing that is not like immediately clear to me is how you would use this knowledge uh in patients uh, because, as you say, I mean, the idea is that you would sort of be able to use this for some kind of early diagnostics. Um, but it's a little bit unclear to me how you would do that, aside from asking people whether they can smell a scent or not. I mean, do do you see do you see this paper moving the clinical science forward there, or is it more like ah, oh, we start seeing the mechanism?
3: Yeah, in terms of uh, um, practical aspect and application, um, I think it is well known that uh, loss of smell is actually associated with different things such as depression and mental health. So in a way, I think if the cause and the reason sort of established, it's much easier to treat it and find potential ways to treat it. But in terms of early diagnostics, um, so based on things based on the um, other sources, I sort of uh, heard that um, loss of smell is not always in the list of symptoms that are sort of described. yeah in 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 on different uh, recommendations let's say it's obvious if you have fever and cough then you have to go and get tested but uh, the numbers actually suggest that um, i think among um, people who tested positive like 80% of them actually reported that they had an initial loss of smell so it could be used as an early diagnostic an early sign that it is um ongoing infection
0: yeah and, and yeah also, i think I think, yeah. I think you have a point there that i mean having a clinical explanation and a clinical rationale to include it among your diagnostic criteria might actually help so that's a um that's an aspect i haven't thought about um still to some extent i feel like didn't we already know that loss of smell was one of the like hallmark signs of cold covid19 uh as opposed to, say, influenza. But 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 you have a point. Having a having a scientific reason behind why you would expect this symptom is making it more likely that you also take that uh, symptom seriously.
3: Yeah, I think it's also as I said, um, since it's not yet uh, there are not studies that prove this scientifically. It's not taken as serious, and one of the consequences, for instance, could be that. Well, you can experience loss of smell, but doesn't feel any other symptoms yet. And this wouldn't stop you, for instance, from going to work and uh, like infecting other people. But if it would be confirmed systematically in studies, I think then, of course, another measures could be taken in this case. Let's say yeah, you stay home and take a test instead of going somewhere. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, It's actually really interesting. I just uh, looked up uh, quite quickly the Swedish CDC to, s- to list uh, the symptoms of uh, COVID-19 and uh, anosmia is currently not uh, among them, so uh, that's actually a really strong case for why uh, if we can actually see that there is a molecular mechanism uh, that is uh, viable for the induction of the symptom, then that symptom should be included in the list of uh, uh, things to look out for uh, if you are uh, suspecting uh, COVID-19 infection. Uh, so, I was thinking a little bit about, they were describing that they used uh, mice as a model system for the, uh, as, as, a, as a proxy for uh, uh, the model system that they wanted to do in humans. But from my understanding, uh, SARS-CoV-2 doesn't affect mice. So how did they, did they create some sort of Chimera or how did they actually analyze this in mice? Mm,
3: I'm I'm not sure. I thought that mice got also affected and there are studies going on. In-
1: oh, I thought it was only uh, like uh, civets and uh, uh, and cats and yeah, some other bats and stuff. No, like I,
0: I am at least partially on, uh, on Emil's side here. I think Mice huh? is not thought to be a very good model for uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, as far as I know. Um, but are they actually, yeah, actually I mean, using s- the mice models like that?
3: Um, well, they use samples of mucos and the data sets obtained from the mice.
0: Yeah, but... So yeah.
1: they did infect uh, the nasal cavity of mice, yes.
0: Or is it just that they are looking for cells expressing ACE2? Yeah. Uh,
1: the
2: last paper, uh, I mean, in the last podcast for the, uh, the uh, COVID paper, it is like I had a point where mice with human ACE2 is a promising model for uh, yeah. vaccine and drug testing. So I guess, yes.
1: So they have chimerized uh, the ACE2 receptor in that particular mice. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's an ACE2, it's a human ACE2 expressed in mice model. Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. True. yeah, that makes more sense.
0: But is that what they're using in this paper? Uh, <laughs> I, I think so. I think they say
5: uh, they developed mouse models expressing human ACE2 if they're not talking about the other study then.
0: Because I... I mean, they they do site-free mouse studies where they get data from. And all of those studies are published in 2015 and 2014. Which, I mean, there might have been other reasons to clone an ACE2, a human ACE2 into mice at that point. But I'm not sure that, that they're actually looking at... Uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection in the mice at all?
3: No, all the studies that they refer to in terms of mice model, uh, the data was obtained more from studies that just studied the olfactory sensory systems in the mice, from what I see.
0: Yeah, that's that's sort of what I think. I think that they might actually just use that as a proxy for how the olfactory system works, not so much uh, as an infection model.
3: Yeah, but basically what they do is they simply identify in which cells they can find ACE2 and this protease expressed and then do immunostaining on this as well. So its it doesn't show in particular that these cells get affected by virus. That's not what they tested here. Oh,
1: maybe I misunderstood it then. Uh, I thought that they actually introduced uh, the viral particle too. So they just checked... Uh, the uh, the ace exp- the ace presence in uh, the nasal cavity yeah oh okay so there's no uh, there's no introduction of the virus into the no not sh- i don't
3: think I, so. I
0: i'm not sure but i think i think there there's only it's i think that the mice part is only on the olfactory system overall okay yeah that yep. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's it's it's sort of what I'm saying here. That it's it is a fairly complicated paper in terms of methodology because <laughs> they are they are using a lot of data sets, and I think I counted to four different types of sequencing in here. You have single cell sequencing, you have bulk RNA sequencing, you have something called DropSeq, and then you also have SmartSeq two, which I don't even know what it is. It is tricky. They are they are. They are sort of walking around the actual subject method-wise here, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they are doing some some quite nice inferences.
1: Yeah, it's really cool findings actually. If we can uh, confirm this by, uh, I don't know, if there is a coronavirus that is SARS-like that you could uh, induce in mice, that would be a really useful. And then afterwards, see if uh, if uh, you could see a loss of these uh coronavirus entries uh, expressing cells uh that would be a a huge uh indicator that this could be a mechanism for uh anosmia.
0: i guess you could you could do that in one of the one of the species that actually seem to be affected wasn't ferrets a good model civets civets maybe yeah, yeah.
1: and bats and uh I yeah, but was, b-
0: bats yeah. don't really get a cold. I think that's the problem.
1: Mm, yeah. You, you, yeah, you, want, to, you want to
0: have an animal that can sneeze. Yeah, I know very little about civet, civet biology too. So, uh. The paper is quite heavy in terms of methodology and there's a lot of things you sort of need to understand. And there's several things in the figures of this paper where I feel like I see what, you tr- what the story is that you try to tell but I actually don't know what I'm looking at. It's a lot of color dots in different colors. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I guess that's also one of the problems with the quickly expanding COVID-19 science, that there's a lot of disciplines touching upon each other. Uh, and they they sort of intersect on that. We try to solve what's going on with this novel disease, Um but there's a little bit of infection epidemiology in one end, and then there is human physiology, and then there is the um, virology part of this, and the evolutionary aspect, and there's bioinformatics going into this, so there's a lot of things that have to intersect, and uh, it's probably quite hard to please everyone in your paper in terms of level of understanding, for example. And I still think I got the Hiteko message. I'm I'm still... I'm still quite happy with <laughs> with my interpretation of the paper <laughs> so there's there has been i I saw this um I think it was this morning actually another paper also looking at basically the same thing that was reported in Swedish media mm-hmm. uh, I unfortunately didn't have time to actually look into the paper uh, because but I saw I saw the snippet f- uh, from the Swedish radio and I was like, aha, so they are bringing up the the same paper. And then I realized it's actually not the same paper. There's another paper also also talking about the uh, mechanisms behind uh, the loss of smell. Uh, But I guess none of you have had time to look at that paper either. If you followed the Swedish news this morning.
1: No, sorry. Do you remember the name of the paper?
0: (laughs) No, but I can probably bring it up very quickly. Uh, Researchers in the United States have found high uh, amounts of the receptor ACE2 in a certain area in the nose, the one that is processing smell. Doesn't this look like your paper, Anna, in a nutshell? And then you realize that this is actually a paper published in European Respiratory Journal. Uh, It's called Elevated ACE2 Expression in the Olfactory Neuroepithelium. Implications for Anosmia and Upper respir- respiratory source CoV 2 entry and replication. Mm,
1: interesting.
0: Isn't this, it sounds a lot like the paper we have just talked about.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's in human stuff.
0: Yeah, but they had included human studies, uh, human expression studies in, in the paper we just discussed as well. Yeah. Approaching the end of the pod today, and um, schools are starting again in Sweden, as is the university. And many people are going back to work physically now after the summer. So, um, I would like to just quickly have a round of uh, opinions on this. Uh, what do you feel towards this development? And I'll, let's start in Sebastian's end.
5: I mean, it's if you go out now, I guess a lot of people still have vacation, but if you go out now, it's almost like normal I, I don't think there's anything different at least where i live out in the quay by area if i take the trams or anywhere at all even if it's like during the day it's everything is full like normal
0: uh, a similar impression struck me when i was downtown yesterday to uh, collect my new glasses uh, that before the summer and in the early summer, it still felt like everything was a little bit more sleepy than normal, even though you, I mean, there were people downtown and there were people at the cafes and at the restaurants, but it, it didn't feel like there was a lot of people and it felt more sleepy than usual. But now, after the vacations, I wouldn't have been able to tell nope. really that there were that we're still in the middle of a pandemic, uh, except that there's signs saying keep distance, yeah,
1: yeah, on that. Yeah, on that exact same note, I don't know if it's being picked up by uh, by the microphone, but uh, I live uh, basically on a huge campus, and uh, currently, right now, there are about I would say seventy people right outside my windows with uh, with a with a huge uh, boombox and uh, jumping and dancing and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely not. Uh, restricted as as uh, I believe many scientists are recommending people are not following those guidelines at least not in terms of uh, of new students
0: so what what I what I think is kind of curious in this context is that the at least yet the swedish case numbers have not really jumped uh, there has been talking maybe the last week maybe the last two weeks of that we have reached like a a new plateau rather than having falling case numbers um but um given 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 everything about it, I, I know about how it usually is when school is starting i mean kids usually get sick pretty much immediately you would almost have expected cases to explode already by now and that hasn't happened and i i sort of wonder what the reason behind that is if it is that we're taking measures that actually delays that, or if it is that we have a sufficiently widespread immunity so that the disease might not be not transmitting, but it's sort of slowed down in transmission because there are less susceptible hosts, or if it is that we're still not indoors the way we're usually in the... Uh, as fall approaches in Sweden and temperatures go down, we, we tend to go indoors. Maybe that's what's still keeping us from a big jump upwards in cases. Anyone who has like an idea on, on this? Because I'm really torn to which explanation it could potentially be.
1: So I have two uh, main thoughts when it comes to this particular uh, idea of, uh, of uh, widespread immunization, and you've already touched on one of them. Like it has been described that uh, this infection is hugely dose dependent, which is quite, uh, which is quite weird when you think about viruses that they like infect and then they multiply and then they spread, but it appears that this virus that the severity of the infection is quite closely related to the initial dosage. So that would mean that if the main uh, groupings and uh, social gatherings are happening outside, you would dilute the uh the viral load by the immediate uh, atmosphere around you and that would be a lot uh larger if you're outdoors compared to when you are indoors and that would of course implicate that uh, uh, as soon as people start having more social gatherings inside may perhaps due to cold or to perhaps to for uh, some other uh, cultural factors uh, then that will increase, if if that, of course, is true. Um, Another factor that I've, uh, there was a huge publication from uh, from, uh, Karolinska, which is the big uh, university hospital in Stockholm, uh, that uh, implied that the main method of immunization is uh, is not via antibodies, uh, but via T cells. And, of course, that is uh, not easily detectable amongst the wide wide, uh, public. So that would indicate that if there is this uh, large immunization based on this particular mechanism, then we would have already could potentially have a larger immunity in the population compared to uh, then when we just screen against with antibodies. Uh, And that, of course, will leave less uh, hosts susceptible to infection. Uh, so that's my two uh, main ideas. I really hope that it's the T cell one because that means that we are further along this uh, uh, this pandemic than uh, than uh, w- what previously has been thought. But currently, we don't have uh, data to uh, to further elucidate if that is uh, is true.
0: There is. There is actually another twist to that, uh, which is really uncertain, but might be worth just bringing up to get a, get a little bit of a perspective there. Um, there was also a report this spring, and I'm not sure if we discussed this on the last pod or not, uh, that uh, outlined that if you look at blood samples from before the pandemic, uh, so blood samples taken in 2015 to 2018, uh, you detect an immune response. ...to the novel coronavirus... ...despite that people couldn't possibly... ...have seen that virus before. Um, So... ...it was hypothesized... ...that a certain portion of the population... ...might have... ...a immune response... ...despite having... ...haven't been been exposed to this exact virus before... ...similar to how... ...there seems to be a cross-reactivity... ...between the original SARS virus and this one. And... If that would also play out in the human body, it would mean that you would um, that you you would at least have a partial protection, uh, maybe full protection to COVID nineteen, even if you haven't been exposed to this exact coronavirus virus before. And I think the degree to which they detected uh, this immune response in old samples was something like thirty to forty percent. Uh, so it would actually bring up the number of non-susceptible hosts quite a bit. So if you sort of add all these numbers together, we have maybe like 20% of people in Stockholm uh, with antibodies, and that number is quite old, so maybe it's actually a little bit higher now. Uh, And then the Karolinska study essentially says that you have an equal amount of people who just have the T-cell response, but who are still immune to some degree, that's up to 40% 40 in total then. And then if you also would add in maybe an additional 30 to 40% who might be partially protected, that's a quite high degree of non-susceptible hosts. Now, we don't know if this is actually true. And I guess that's the problem with this entire hypothesis. But I guess that if Sweden, who hasn't really taken a lot of measures for the fall... If we keep on not taking a lot of measures and keep going on basically as normal and we don't see a huge increase in cases, I think that speaks towards that that would actually be the case, that a lot of people have previous protection or at least previous partial protection.
1: And I know that this uh, this case that you've described as... uh, uh, common protection is uh, is present within other families of uh, pathogens. I know, for example, there is a antigen that is uh, expressed on all uh, Enterobacteriaceae, uh, called uh, the Enterobacteriaceae common antigen. And I know that if you gain uh, immune uh, memory against this particular uh, antigen, you will get immunity against most uh, members of the family of Enterobacteriaceae, uh, which uh, could, if that exists in bacteria, then maybe this could also, uh, maybe if there is a common antigen between all members of the coronaviruses, for example, you could get, uh, if you're exposed to a previous, uh, uh, pre- if you're previously exposed to a coronavirus, uh, and you've gained immunity via this common antigen, then maybe you could have uh, immunity against uh, COVID-19 as well.
0: I guess this is one of the cases where only time will tell yeah. because I don't think the research will catch up with the virus <laughs> <No>. <laughs> until we uh, either know or don't know, if yeah. you see what I mean.
1: Yeah, I don't even know how you would find such a... Th- yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, every time
3: I listen to some podcasts or read things, it's very trendy nowadays to compare this current pandemic to 1918 Spanish flu. And if you remember what happened there, is that there was a second wave that was... First, there was really... Um, how to say people started to feel that it's over now and everyone was so happy and celebrating and then it was second wave. It was much more deadlier than the first one. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> no one knows what's going to happen. But if you look uh, at the reports currently, I think you see that certain countries started to... Um, impose restrictions back, like, for instance, Italy and um, and Norway and Finland and actually South Korea, I think, as well.
0: Yeah, South France as well.
3: Yeah. There is an increase in cases again.
0: Yeah, and I think that's... What makes me curious is that we're not seeing the same thing in Sweden, at least not yet. Um, But because I think... The interesting thing about this rising rising cases is that it's not, ri- it's not really like it's only in countries that locked down early and didn't have a lot of cases in the first round. Because if that was the case, it would be really easy to say, yeah, okay, obviously when you start re- releasing restrictions and the virus is still around somewhere, you will start seeing reinfections. But it's also in places like Italy and Spain that were actually quite hard hard hit by the first wave of the uh, of the virus and what makes me wonder if if the new the distribution of these new cases are in other cities and i haven't really seen good data on that uh, it could be interesting to see if like if you have for example the, the virus now spread, spreading in southern italy as opposed to northern italy that would make a lot of sense but i i haven't seen good data separating that out on a lower level than uh, than entire countries so that's a, uh, that's a wrap for today. I would like to wish all of you people uh, who've been uh, with me today um, a nice start of the fall. That also goes to everyone listening to listening to the pod. Uh, remember to wash your hands, take care, stay healthy, and according to Emil, also stay outside as much as you possibly can. This pod is hosted by the Bengtson Palme Lab at the University of Gothenburg. If you have any questions or comments about the content of the pod, please send us a message on Twitter at Bengtson Palme. That is one single word. Or you can also send an email to podcast at microbiology.se. Finally, if you like what you're hearing, please give us a five-star review in, say, for example, the Apple Podcast Store. And thank you very much for listening.